Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. (laughs) And the conversation starts. Hello. Welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and talk with us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. In this episode of Off the Page, Stegner fellow Amanda Gunn reads poetry from her current collection, Things I Didn't Do With This Body, as well as newer work. Amanda Gunn grew up just at the edge of the woods in Southern Connecticut with two older brothers. She is a Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford, as well as a PhD candidate in English at Harvard, where she studies poetry, ephemerality, and Black pleasure. Her recent work appears in Poetry, Los Angeles Review of Books Quarterly Journal, and Narrative Magazine. Her debut collection, Things I Didn't Do With This Body, is currently out from Copper Canyon Press. The first poem I'm going to read is the title poem, sort of, to my book, which is coming out in May of this year. It's called Things I Didn't Do With This Body and Things I Did. I didn't bear a child with it, bear a drunk friend's arm around its shoulders, bear it over a fence in one go, bear it from Harlem to Wall Street by foot, run it until it vomited, run it until it vibrated with joy, lean it long against a redwood it had hiked to, lay it on the earth beneath the aurora borealis. March it white-laced until it wed. March it in Baltimore for a killed black man. March it to war until it was dead. Bear a lover eager on its spine. Bear it back to its natal soil. Bear it to the lake's center under the swift, awesome power of its legs. Bear witness, I did not make its child. I didn't bear it to the home it asked me for. Instead, as if by stumbling, as if by walking backward even, as if the beginning and not the end held the drum and cymbal and jazz hands. I bore three lovers in its mouth, bore a blow to its cheek, bore the snap and drag of the Atlantic at high tide, bared its breasts on that beach, scored its ankle with a knife twelve thin times, bored into the white underflesh of its thigh, bore its scars, bore tattoos to cover its scars, Bore hot wax where it was tenderest. Bore on its face a heavy, pretty face. 
bore smoke deep in its tissues, bore the soft, bore the love of its family, withheld from it embraces, withheld from it a decent meal, bore love for the boy who refused it, bore the death of the boy who didn't, bore the weight it made from the pills I had handed it, bore its joints irreparable ache, bore the turned sweet smell beneath its breast, taught water to bear it so I could rest, bore its sloughings, bore its swellings, bore its manifold solitudes, and on the rare keen nights it stayed with me. I bore its bright, fragrant, solitary, intolerable pleasure. The next poem I'm going to read from the book is a poem I wrote about my dad for my dad. It's called Father at Table. There was what he demanded with one word and a pointing finger. Chicken. Cornbread. Taters. The delicacies his labor both purchased and prepared us all his long hours, hours. Trying not to interrupt the table talk that had snapped shut and refused him. Not vain, not white folk. He asked only one courtesy. No swearing he could hear. He was a Christian and my father. That God-forsaken finger how stingy it seemed then. Now, how tender, how pleading. How I bristled at the soft of his voice, an engine rumbling under the hood of our attention. And oh, what kindness I held back, expecting things he would never ask of me. Wait your turn, say thank you. Say please. This next poem I'm going to read is one of my newer poems, a poem that I wrote since the book. It's called Girls' Day. It has nothing to do with you that she shares your name, my new friend, with whom I will hie off to wine country. Neither of us drinks, it bores her, and the way you went, darling, I won't touch the stuff. I live in the state of California, beside a bush lit with hummingbirds, who drink as if these were the earth's last sugars. Everything tastes different. I eat pineapple edibles. I scent my rooms with tonka and peppermint. My friend and I take our girl's day, without her husband or kids, without my solitudes. We climb nude into a bath of chunky, slime-slick clay. Side by side we shower, dig out from our vaginas blood-like clots of peat. Mineral heat unlocks the wooden drawer of our complaints. What we give, what we take but shouldn't take. We talk like girlfriends, I mean the other kind. I loved you terribly. Summer mornings breast to breast in the icy sound. I'd shiver to shore, You'd swim alone farther than farther so perilous out. 
Can you see me through the loose strumming of the waves? I have left the window open for you. Do you know to find me? She's good company, good-humored, real, has a gift for listening and ease. From time to time, I get to say your living name. And the final poem I'm going to read is called Spill. The worst didn't happen when I was young, even when, at just ten, that first shed red smear came away on my hand. Some mercy contained me, kept pristine my bright acid-washed jeans. The house still full of my brothers. I had to speak that blood into the consciousness of others. My mother sighed, said, show me. She was the age I am now, sweating out hot flashes while her husband and kids slept sound. Now standing in the dim bathroom, after dinner, her shirt dishes wet, day not done, too tired to hold in her scowl. Gazing on the start of her daughter's almost pregnant years, fearing, too, what a young grandmother bears. She couldn't offer me the fragile symbolic flowers I'd heard of from other girls. She gave me something I wanted more anyhow, the stack of lilac pads I'd been waiting for, afternoons alone cross-legged on the olive shag floor, smoothing the creases from the half-gloss flesh-pink pamphlet a diagram of a woman inside out, just waiting, caressing it like a picture of a friend. No one told me what a mess you're made at the end, not even my mother who, as if looking back on one long, terrible vacation, bless her, remembers mostly the hot weather she couldn't acclimate to. I didn't anticipate the vague shake of my doctor's head as he turned away toward the corridor and more fruitful matters. Meanwhile, she's grown tired, my body, of all I planned or didn't plan, tired of quietly carrying things for me. And so, in front of fine company, after a very fine meal, where I've been charming, barely betraying my forgetfulness or my sweat or my rage. She leaves her last abundant burden on the crushed seafoam velvet of someone's chaise. Hi, Amanda. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on Off the Page and sharing your work. You mentioned just now that the second two poems you read are newer and not from the first book that, without lifting the production veil too much, I believe will be coming into the world just as this episode is probably airing, fortuitously. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, May 23rd is the official date. So how have you felt your poetry changing since that first book? Maybe since you've been here at Stanford and are working on a second manuscript? Yeah, most of what I've written here at Stanford is not in the book. Actually, yeah, I think that's right. Some of it is, but most of it is not. 
I've been thinking about this lately. I've been thinking about how is the new material different? And I might say that the difference feels tonal. I still think about a lot of the same things. I still think about family. I still think about the body, the experience of living in the body. But tonally, I feel like the poems are a little bit harder. They feel a little bit less gentle with the subject matter. You know, I've always said that there's no poem that's worth really like hurting someone. You know, I feel like I've written pretty gently. And part of that is because I write about a lot of the people I love. You know, like with a poem like Father at Table, I was trying to be gentle, you know, with my dad, who's the subject of the poem. But I feel a little bit like somehow the gloves are just slightly off. There's a slight shift. (laughs) There's a slight shift where... I'm harder on myself and I'm harder on other people, I think, in the poems. So tonally, they feel a little bit tougher. Where does a poem start usually for you? Does it start with a memory? Does it start with an image? It usually starts with a phrase. It often will start with language. I find that some little phrase will pull me into the experience. I hear that phrase or I'll hear something. I'll hear somebody express something and particular way in a couple of words will sort of make me remember something that happened a long time ago and that never got worked through emotionally for me, which is what I often use poetry to do, is to work through something. And so the language presents an opportunity to talk about something I haven't been able to talk about yet. Well, and it seems to me as if time is really present in a lot of your poems, like in Father at Table and in Spill, I feel like the speaker looking back on these past events, seeing them differently now than they did at the time, being you know close to the age now that your mother was then, they don't feel like they could have been written a day after the events they describe. No, because they're talking about Spill, for instance, it might take not you know, having a period anymore to understand all your feelings going into getting it for the first time and like what that meant. And the sort of, I don't know if confusion is the right, I think I'm supposed to say confusion, but I think I want to say excitement, you know, that I was so excited when I was a little kid to have that experience and to feel like I was becoming something different. And maybe it takes exiting that experience entirely to really have the language to talk about what it was to start. So time does become really important then because it's the thing that adds dimension. It's a thing that adds dimension to these early experiences. I also want to ask about how having a sort of addressee for a poem affects it for you, because in Girls' Day there is a you that's being spoken to. Was that really important for the writing of that poem? It was for that poem, because in the book, there are a number of elegies for this, for the person who is the addressee of that poem, which the context of that, the context of these elegies, I think helps that poem make sense. But there's this sense, I think, when someone passes away, how do I put this? It's almost like when you break up with somebody that you still really care about and you're still close to. And you need to process the breakup. And they're the person you would process things with if you could. But all of a sudden you can't. 
there's this irrevocable break and you have to learn to process it on your own. And for me, a lot of these elegies that I wrote for her in the book, many of them are addressed to her, not all, but many. There's a sense of like, the only way I can process her death is to talk to her about it because she's the one I would talk to if she were here. I think that thing you're talking about comes through so strongly in, especially the end of the poem, I've left the window open for you. Do you know how to find me? Like that sense of still wanting to talk to that person and still have that relationship is really powerful. It's such a strong feeling because we bump up against the finality of death. We bump up against it so hard and again and again and again that we can't, what do you mean I can't talk to this person? But you don't really mean I can't talk to them anymore. You don't really mean that I can't. You don't really mean never again. It's this thing that we have to keep relearning throughout the grief process. And it just will never feel fair. It won't ever feel fair. And that's a thing that I feel like I'm exploring in a lot of poems in the book, toward the end of the book, and also apparently still. And you've talked about how you feel like your new work is tougher, less gentle and you are obviously writing about some incredibly difficult and personal topics and i'm a, a fiction writer and i feel like i'm always writing about real things in disguise but with a mask on more so than i think most poets and most memoirists i'm wondering is there material that you have felt at times like oh well i'm not gonna go there <laughs> right now or maybe ever and then on a related note i also wonder if after having written about something or written several things about something does that change how you feel about the experience? Yes. Those are two really good questions. I'm going to try to tackle them both and remind me to come back to the second part if I forget. I have a funny relationship to things I should and shouldn't write about. Because very often, there's not a lot that I would not in the end write about if it's something that moves me or is a part of my life. It's not a lot that, as it turns out, feels like something I would be unwilling to tackle. But I do this thing when I'm writing sometimes. I have an idea. Like I said, I'll, you know, language will lead me into a poem. And I'll start to write and I'll say, I can't write this poem. It's vulgar to write this poem. It's so personal. Or it's so personal to me or it's so personal to someone else or it's so revealing or it's so of the body or so something that I can't write it. I can't write it. And I say that to myself the whole time I'm drafting. And then it's written. And it's this thing where I'm trying to talk myself out of writing it the whole time. So maybe that impulse, that feeling of there are certain things that I won't talk about or shouldn't talk about, sort of operate like a dare. There's something of a dare happening. And usually the poem gets written. The second half of your question was another good question. What was it? About whether or not writing through any material, but especially maybe very difficult or challenging material, alters your feelings about the material or the experience afterward. It does for a few reasons. One is, in a few ways, sometimes I feel like, you know, I use the process of writing about something I don't fully understand for myself. And so there's that process of discovery as I write. It's like, oh, okay, I feel this way because of this. It means this. But there's a couple of things that happen in poetry 
that can distance you from the experience. One of them to me is the casual fictionalization of real events. That sometimes these are things that have to happen in the poem. You know, yes, it was a green bowl, but it sounds better to say blue bowl. It has a better sonic resonance to use blue bowl than it does to say green bowl, right? And so it's these little bits of fiction that arise in some difficult emotional material that make you feel like it's less real. It sort of creates a kind of distance between you and the sort of object of experience or, you know, whatever it is. So that's one thing. And beyond just making it feel fictional, I think you just feel differently about it at the end than you did before. And in some ways, you sort of created a sense of what this means in capital letters, right? What this event means. Ultimately, you're making an argument in a poem can both elevate the experience and reduce it, right? And so there's this sense of like, well, your death meant this thing to me. It meant a million things to me. The poem's only talking about one or two or three or four or five. And it can't possibly contain all of that experience. But now that you've written the poem and you read the poem aloud and you publish the poem somewhere and maybe you publish it in a book, now it becomes this thing that is containable in 14 lines. How could it not change how you feel? In some ways, you have to resist as a poet thinking that your life experience, even though it's used in your work, that it's equal to it. Because even complex poems are simpler than how things really are. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. I feel like the first thing you said about the casual fictionalization makes me think of this uh, Diane Seuss interview I read once where someone asked her if writing about these difficult experiences was therapeutic. I can't remember what the exact word was. She said the crafting felt therapeutic, not disclosing the experience, the makingness of it that actually felt good, which I think made a lot of sense. It does help you come to some important conclusions. It is a way to help yourself through something difficult, but there is a distancing. I think every writer has that feeling, especially when you're finishing a piece of like, I only got like this portion of it though, you know, which is what makes it legible and readable to anyone else. It makes it make sense, but it's a reduction and a simplification of this amorphous thing. Absolutely. Yeah, the reduction of it. In some ways, I think of it as this sort of inevitable, like the disappointment that comes at the end of a poem, even a great poem, even a poem you really worked to its utmost. You know, there's this feeling of, I only got the tiny corner of the experience into the poem. You are also currently a doctoral candidate at Harvard studying poetry, ephemerality, and Black pleasure. I'm curious how you felt your scholarly work and your creative work intersect over the years. Yeah, I feel like there's been a lot of overlap. Once I figured out that it was a thing that you could do, then I let the things I was doing in my poetry bubble up in my critical work. So I'm currently working on a single author dissertation on Gwendolyn Brooks. But at the time that I originally conceived it, I was going to be thinking about, and I do still think about this in my poetry, pleasure and the ephemerality of pleasure and the sort of longing that gets built up around the loss 
the sort of drifting away of pleasure. And so just as an example, one of my sort of obsessions is perfume. And so I, I think a lot about the enjoyment of something as fleeting as perfume. Part of what makes it so beautiful is that it has a clock. It starts with top notes, it has heart notes, and then it goes into its base notes, and then it drifts away right off of your skin. Right? And so that's something I like to meditate on and think about the longing that is created by that process. Well, and it would seem there's a huge connection between thinking about the body and thinking about pleasure and thinking about ephemerality because the body is ephemeral also. Yeah, yeah. And so the loss of pleasurable things, the loss of pleasure does create this gap. It creates this longing and this hole. And that itself seems to leave an almost permanent mark on the body, right? So that it just sort of leads you into thinking about what's permanent, what's not permanent. What do we get to keep? What do we have to keep? But I still find, even though I'm doing a more close reading type old school dissertation with Gwendolyn Brooks, I still find myself thinking about some of these same things. One thing that comes up a lot in her poetry is the concept of nourishment. So I'm always, if you read more of my work, you see that I think a lot about food and nourishment and privation and bounty and sort of the consequences of bounty and the pleasures of fatness and the difficulties of fatness. And yeah. I think the fear that some writers have about critical study, that the superstition is that it will zap that sort of unconscious, mysterious aspect of craft. And I'm just curious, have you in studying, especially another poet in studying their work, so intensively. Do you feel like there's a different brain you use for your own work? Well, I definitely feel that I give priority to the creative work in my heart. (laughs) Like I just feel like it's, you know, it feels more like when I think of my work, that's what I think of my work. So I don't really feel like they're necessarily competing for primacy in my intellectual life. There's a definite sense that the creative work comes first. But I think so far, the work that I've done, things feel different enough from each other. The creative work feels different enough in subject matter. There is some overlap. And I still, of course, if I'm interested in something on one side, it's going to bubble up on the other. But they feel different enough that it doesn't feel like anything's being taken away or interfered with too much. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Amanda. Thank you so much for sharing your work with our listeners. All right. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is great. Off the Page is produced by the Stanford Storytelling Project and the Creative Writing Program. This episode was produced by Isabel Edgar and myself with support from Jackson Roach and Laura Davis. Thanks to Jonah Willigans for his supervision and Christina Oblatza and Daniel Huliganga at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. For more Stanford writing, author events, and workshops, visit creativewriting.stanford.edu and storytelling.stanford.edu. I'm Mark Lebowski. Thanks for listening.